0: main street to wall street global business celebrity and former fortune 100 c-suite executive jeffrey hazlett takes you inside the good the bad and the ugly of businesses today saddle up it's time for all business with jeffrey hazlett
1: every great leader knows they need to constantly push the status quo and my guest today not only embraces the concept of challenge culture, he expects it. Nigel Travis is currently the principal at Challenge Consulting, and prior to that, he was the CEO of Duncan Brands, Burger King, and has had a great career in the food service industry. Not only is Nigel a branding expert, he is the chairman and co-owner of Leighton Orient Football Club in the UK. Nigel,
2: welcome to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlitt. Jeff, good to be with you again, and... uh just listening to you talking about podcasts. I love podcasts and I'm right in that age group. (laughs) That's fantastic. Well, don't forget to
1: go to just go to C-Suite Radio, the world's largest business podcast. We're now encroaching on about 400 podcasts. There's lots to choose from. You know, Nigel, I've known you for a long time. I met you filming my Bloomberg show, the C-Suite with Jeffrey Hazlett. I think the last time I actually saw you in face-to-face was on the set at uh, Bloomberg. And one thing that impressed me about working with you is that you worked the very same hours as your franchisees when you led Duncan Brands, meaning you got up when they got up. And of course, they get up very early. Tell me a little bit more about that.
2: Yeah, I mean- Franchisees, in many ways, are our customers or were our customers, both at Dunkin', Papa John's, where I was CEO for four years. And I think you have to align yourself with their habits. It's something I've done all my career. I go right back to when I was 25. I was in labor relations in the UK, and I used to go on the shop floor at four o'clock in the morning to really find out what was going on. Uh, I did catch some people asleep in the middle of uh, <laughs> a jet engine, but so that was a different part of it. But you've got to find out what's going on. You've got to connect with the consumer. And one of the things that I found through all my years in franchising is to make sure that you listen to the franchisees. Sometimes they'll have extreme views, but they're the people talking to the, franch- to the customers, the people who really buy the coffee, the donuts, and the sandwiches – at Duncan, and 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 I always tried to make sure I was living the same tough work life that they go through. So, do you consider the
1: franchisee your customer or the end customer your customer when you ran Duncan, for instance?
2: Well, I've always considered the end customer, the real customer. But the people who actually speak to those customers every day are the franchisees. Um, you know, when I was doing CNBC, Joe Kernan on Squawk Box used to say, "My." My my favorite store manager is Sid. I go and see Sid. Well, it's Sid who talks to the customer, and he knows what the customer's thinking. He knows what they're ordering. He knows what they're going to complain about. And it was interesting. I had a conversation this morning, a little bit about my football club, but about business in general. Too many people do not listen to their customers, and they sometimes think customers come up with crazy thoughts. In the franchising business, you'll get those crazy thoughts filtered through the franchisees. So you have to get very close to them.
1: I'm going to come back and talk a little bit about that communication, but I have to ask you this question because you were chairman of one of the most iconic brands in the country. Now, I have to say, Dunkin' Donuts also was a sponsor of my all-business show because America runs on Dunkin' and so did all-business with Jeffrey Hazlett. So what do you contribute to the to the attribute of the longevity of that brand? Because I'm telling you, if you're a Dunkin's customer, you are, you know, just a rabid fan. What do you what do you think makes that happen?
2: Well, I think there's many things. I think the the biggest thing is the company always tried to keep its products relatively straightforward and simple. We were very fortunate that people come to our uh, came to Dunkin very frequently and one thing. And I think this is a real learning point too many people fail to think about frequency. They'll talk about average ticket, total sales, total customers, but we thought about frequency. So you need a way to make sure people come back ex- as frequently as possible. And some of our customers at Dunkin' used to come 10 times a day. I mean, they'd come you know, in the morning, they'd come at a coffee break, they'd come at lunchtime and so on. Uh, so I think you need to align with the customer you need to listen, as I said before, to what they want. You need to do market research. But most of all, you have to connect. You have to make it a fun experience. And and one of the things I think we did very well during my 10 years with Duncan was always to find a way of not taking ourselves too seriously. There was a Saturday night live skit about Duncan. And a lot of people said to me, well, what do you think about that? Well, we helped them do it because – You know, coffee should be about fun. It should be about enjoying yourself. So I think the big message is listen to your customer, listen what they want, keep things very simple because they want speed, but most of all, don't take yourself too seriously.
1: Yeah, I think about your brand, I'm thinking about another great brand there in the Boston area, Samuel Adams, and they've got a great set of commercials right now, really focusing on the key kind of customer they serve, and uh, and they're showing the crazy side of that customer. But we have a lot of executives here today who've had their own, that, you know, really practice their own personal brand and are looking to elevate it. What advice would you give to them on increasing the longevity of those brands?
2: Well, I, I, I think that the, the first, the first thing is obviously making sure you listen to what the customer have to say. I think your marketing has to be up to date. And I think later on, we're going to talk about digital. I think you have to align with figuring out where the new fans, the new customers are going to come from. I mean, a lot of our customers at Dunkin' when I first arrived here, were getting somewhat older, a bit like me. And, and we had to find a way of identifying with. Uh, kids. And, and, and I think too many brands, they do their segmentation, and any marketeers out there understand segmentation, but they start at like 18. I think you have to think, how can you connect, particularly with products that we sell at Dunkin', like coffee and donuts? How do you connect with kids perhaps in the age range of 13 to 18? And, and, and we did it by having influencers. Um, Charlie and Dixie Emilio is one good example. And it's interesting. Another brand. I'm on the board of Abercrombie and Fitch. Mm. They have those same two influences, and they've been equally successful. So I think you have to find a way to communicate with the younger customers. They will stay with you, but you can't forget. You've got to have great products. And and we sold the company to uh, Rourke Inspire Brands back in December. But I still go in and look at look at Duncan. They're still coming out with new products, but they're coming out with new products that have come out of great customer research. And I think too many people say, "I know what the customer wants." You don't. You need to find out what the customer feels they want.
1: You know. And I, I once was watching someone on a post on Facebook. It was an authors group, and they said, "How do you become a great speaker?" And I said. I finally just wrote, "Be great." You got to be good. You got to have a good brand. If you're going to have a good brand, it's got to be a promise delivered.
0: C-suite radio.
1: And
2: I want to talk to you about this challenge culture. Why is pushing back so important? Well, I think it it gives you perfect answers. I mean, challenge culture is not clever. It's about getting the right answers for your business. And it's something that evolved in my mind over the years. I watched some great leaders that I worked for. I worked for companies like Grand Metropolitan in the UK. When I was at Burger King, I had a slightly uh, off the wall boss. Let's say Barry Gibbons. He wrote a uh, he wrote a book once called "If You Want to Make God Laugh, Show Him a Business Plan." Um, <laughs> so uh, so Barry challenged everything I did, and I evolved this into what I called the challenge culture. And the challenge culture is very simple. It's about making sure that your management team challenges everything you do. Again, don't take yourself too seriously. I mean, at my football club, even though I'm the chairman, everyone right down to the players are encouraged to call me, Nigel. They're encouraged to say whatever they want. And if you can encourage people, make it a safe environment, they will give you feedback. And that will make whatever business solution it is, whether you're making donuts, coffee, producing. Um, programs for sports teams or selling uh, apparel, you will get the best answer because people will feel relaxed about challenging and will help you come up with the right answer. And, and I think it's breaking that barrier so that people can actually give you honest, straightforward, not cynical, not nasty feedback. I
1: I like to refer to it as healthy debate and being open and transparent allows for what I call healthy debate and healthy debate's good. I mean, to be able to get that feedback, but what's the fine line between challenging to advance and innovate versus challenging to be a captain of no, to always just sit there and say, be the the protagonist in the, in the room.
2: Um, and clearly I think sometimes that's the culture of the company. And I think when I talk about the challenge culture, one thing I fail to do in my book is probably say that it doesn't have to be the challenge culture, but it, it's the culture that really counts in any company. So if you have a culture that is positive, and the culture in Dunkin' may be different from your organization, Jeff, it doesn't matter. It's having a positive culture. So people need to feel safe. And I think if you create an environment where people feel safe to say whatever, but at the same time you encourage them. Not to be cynical, not to be the one who's always debating, but the one who's trying to, in a constructive way, give input into solutions. And it's all about solutions. I think you can stop those people being the "no, no, no, we shouldn't do it this way." It's creating that supportive, warm uh, environment or warm culture that I think is key. It's everything you do. I mean, it's it's talking to people in the elevator. It's talking to people as you walk down the hall ask them for opinions. I think if you create that culture, that will stop that very bad political individual that you're referring to.
1: Exactly. So, and everyone, I think, wants to achieve prosperity. What's the blueprint to achieve that? Is there even a blueprint
2: for anyone to follow? Yeah, no, I think there is. I mean, if I can be bold enough, in my book, I actually talk about how to start the challenge culture, how to bring it into an organization. And you have to set an example. And and to me, the best example is you do it in your management meetings. You know, you put out a thought, you ask people to challenge it. And, and, and it's interesting. Someone recently at my football club said, look, you're the chairman. Why don't you just decide that? I said, I don't do it that way. I want people to buy in and I want to come up with the best solution we can. I'm not a dictator. So I encourage them to do it. That's the first thing. The second thing is you have to go outside of your immediate team. And one of the most successful things I did when I was at Duncan, I did it at Papa John's and before that Blockbuster, was have what I call coffee chats, where I'd have a group of young people um, down the organizations. So they were several levels below me. Diagonal slice of functions. And then we'd sit down and say, this is about a bit like a TV talk show. I want you to talk about whatever you want to, and, th- and let's just chat. Now, you have to create a safe environment because everyone's worried about, well, what am I going to say to the CEO? Hi. So what do you say is, OK, here's some things we may want to talk about. Right at the uh, middle of the sexual harassment crisis uh, with Weinstein and a few others a few years ago, no. I sat in a room and I said, OK, let's talk about sexual harassment. Does it happen at Dunkin'? Have you seen examples of it? So I created the environment where they knew they could talk about that. I also talked about, is the company going to be bought? Which obviously, ultimately, we did get bought. So you have to say you're allowed to talk about this. You then make sure that everyone in the room, their comments are anonymous. You record what they say by writing down the key points, because you want to work and action those key points. But you don't say it was Jeff that was in the room. It was a group of people. And we change policies as a result of that. So the, the conclusion from all that, you need a safe environment. And there's always going to be the two or three people who don't say anything. So you say, hey, um, Jeff, we haven't heard from you. What do you think about it? But do it in a very friendly way. And I think the message about the culture, the message about the challenge will get out to the whole organization. Because the 20 people who come into that meeting will go away and tell, Ten other people. This is what happened, and it was great. It was fun as well. It's important
1: for us to do that as leaders, especially in bigger organizations, because sometimes you know we get everything fed to us, as you well know, Nigel. And it's great to be able to hear it from the rest of the team and out there in the field. Uh, that's that time is the most valuable time I've ever spent. You know, I, a lot of times I, when I was at Kodak, I would actually go to uh, Best Buy and put put on a blue shirt a Best Buy blue shirt, and go out on the floor and actually sell our printers and cameras on the floor. And man, did I get an earful from customers
2: directly and from the salespeople in Best Buy, which was really great. Yeah, I was talking to someone today. I think the best feedback is the instant feedback. I mean, we all get surveys, don't we, where you've been on the flight and you get a survey from the airline that says, how was your experience with whoever today? and then you fill in the first one which says four out of five say then you have to answer like 25 questions it's a disincentive it's that instant reaction that you have to get and 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 you've given a great example of using the challenge culture in a in a customer setting
0: C suite radio we
2: alluded a little bit
1: to our age we're kind of baby boomer boomers in a millennial body and last year uh, brought about more change and upheaval than normal. One thing about the pandemic that is, was really good was the emphasis on digital. How has digital influenced you?
2: Well, I think it's, it's, it's been something I've had to take very seriously for a long time, particularly, as you say, in the last year. When I joined Blockbuster in 94, the first week I was there, someone came into my office and said, Nigel, here's a, uh, here's a session for you. To talk about video on demand. This is in 94. I said, I don't know anything about video on demand. It was four months hence. He said, You'll learn it, don't worry. So I did it and I became absolutely enthralled with technology because digital on demand was a long way off in 94. So that's when I really got into it. At Blockbuster, I learned that we had to really understand again what the customers were renting, how often they rented it, and and One And then, of course, we had the whole saga with Netflix, which uh, I'm sure a lot of your viewers today will be fascinated. We actually responded very well to Netflix because we launched Blockbuster On Demand. But then when I left Blockbuster, which was in 94, I took all the learning from Blockbuster, went to Papa John's, and we really set about marketing and getting behind um, online um, ordering, which when I got to Blockbuster, was 5% of our sales. When I left four years later, it was uh, 30%. And now in the pizza industry, it's over 75%. It's how you order. So digital has been there for me. I've embraced it right from those blockbusters days. But I think what's happened in the last year has been a uh, seismic shift because we've not only had to communicate like this on Zoom or other devices, but what I learned very quickly in the pandemic is too many people relied on big group meetings. This is a great opportunity to talk to individuals. And many people, and we talk about this lot a lot at my football club. Uh, mental health is a big issue. One of the ways to tackle mental health is by senior leaders talking to individuals, not just groups in in, in their company. The other side of digital is how do you get around the barriers that the pandemic created? I mean. If you went back to, say, December of 2019, and you said to a group of CFOs, you're going to close your books remotely, they would have all said, don't be, don't be ridiculous, you can't right. do it. I was on five public boards at the time, early last year, and they all closed in the first quarter remotely. And that shows what you can do if you embrace technology. Another example is, I'm on the board of Advanced Auto we realized that our customers were working from home and wanted parts delivered quickly. Sometimes our delivery took hours. We launched same day delivery and and we managed to deliver it within two or three hours, something that hadn't been done in that industry before. I could go on and give more and more examples, but I think digital is so important. And as we go forward, we have to take the learning of the last year and say, how can we accelerate it? How can we integrate artificial intelligence? How can we train people by all the great opportunities that, that are created in terms of the web and using graphics and all kinds of transform, transformative technology? I think we should, we'll look back in probably 10 years' time and say 2020 and 2021 were the years that catapulted most forward-looking organizations to truly embrace digital.
1: Well, it showed us how. I mean, imagine we had hundreds of employees, hundreds of millions of employees behind brick walls and firewalls, and in less than thirty days, we we broke down those firewalls, broke down those brick walls, and we pushed people, you know, out to their own homes, and we we protected them. We had the data was safe. We were able to do it, as you said, we were able to close books remotely, which I thought was very interesting. So I think it's very important that we think about this upheaval and this theme
2: that you seem to be thriving, what's the theme that has been a constant through your career? Um, Well, I I would say it's been technology. I mean, I started work in 1972 at Kraft, uh, and I used to write out something, give it to a secretary. She'd type it up in triplicate, bring it back to me. (laughs) If I wanted to use a copying machine, because I was a very junior employee, I had to get permission so I had no involvement with technology basically. Um, so I've gone through all the changes. I remember in 1978 seeing a fax machine for the first time. I thought it will never get better than this. You can actually <laughs> send a piece of paper from a thousand miles away to here. And oh, yeah. then and then email came along. Well most
1: so, people won't remember Nigel it, it used to do it on silver paper and it was a yeah. drum that would go around, and it literally took you for one page, just one single page, maybe an hour to get that that particular fact. I just want to point out to all you young people out there what that was like.
2: Well, it's interesting, talking about that, when I worked for Massey Ferguson, where I worked throughout Europe, uh, uh, the way that email worked in those embryonic email days was, at the end of the day, I would go to this machine with computer paper, you know, the one with the holes in the side, and... And I'd print out all the emails to me. I'd then go to the hotel at night, read all the emails. I'd write the answer, go back, give it to another secretary in the morning, and she would send the answers to all those emails. So that was in (laughs) uh, 1980-ish. So we've come a long way. We've certainly come a long way. By the way, those
1: fax machines, quite frankly, were the size of a dinner table as I recall, and they were very, very expensive. I even remember when there used to be franchise, remember there was, there was fax franchises. You could actually get into the fax business. But anyway, speaking of getting into business, you're one of the owners of a football club in the UK, which here we call soccer. Of course you call it football there in the UK. What can, what can the world of business
2: learn from the world of sports? Um, That's a great question. I, I, I think it's, it's the performance ethos. I mean, Players, coaches get evaluated every single game. Um, I think there's a reluctance for people in business to talk to individuals about their performance regularly that, you know, every, you see a lot of people thinking, well, I've got to do the annual appraisal. Well, and by the way, if I tell the truth as a CEO, I had in 13 years as a CEO, only four true reviews. Now that's terrible. But I think a lot of companies, you could say the same exists. So I think people need to think about reviewing performance regularly. It works in sports. You have all the stats to back it up. So I think that performance, constant performance feedback is is the biggest thing you can learn from sports. I think you also have to recognize that people have good days and bad days. That's something you quickly learn in sports. And, and and people can't be consistent all the time. I've learned that probably more as I've owned the club, which is nearly four years now. So I think that up and down performance element is is something that people need to think about. And we as executives and C-suite people need to think about that. You know, people are not going to be consistent all the time. So I think they're the two big messages, but one I'd like to add which may not stru- strongly uh, answer your question, but I think it's an interesting fact. And it goes back to my whole theme of listening and being challenged. There's two F's in the world and it's not the one people think. There's franchisees and fans, and they're both the same. They're both passionate, opinionated, and I think we have to listen to their views because they're our customers. That's fabulous. I get one last question, then we're gonna open it up
1: for questions from the audience. And I just have to ask you about, do you have any opinion about the possible Super League?
2: Well, the, I spent the last two days talking about it. Um, I mean, there was a thing called Project Big Picture that was talked about um, late last year. Um, I think that was actually a good concept because it was going to send money down what's called the pyramid. Most of your viewers won't know in England, there's 13 levels uh, of, of football teams. We have to be in level four. Um, so it's about creating more money for the whole pyramid, but the league that came was, um, born earlier this week it was a closed league. It was very much based on American sports. It got the biggest outrage I've ever seen. And I'm pleased to say it was canceled this morning. So they got, they got, uh, to use the word I use in my book, they got significant pushback, but Jeff, I think it's a real learning here. It was probably a good concept, and they they certainly believed in it, the people who were behind it, but they executed it appallingly. They mm-hmm. didn't think about their audiences. They didn't think about the fans. They didn't think about the smaller clubs. They didn't think about the governments who got involved in this. So I think if as one big message, whatever idea you have in any business is how you execute and how you communicate it it was done so badly. It's a test case that I'm sure Harvard will write up.
1: That'll be a good one. And to quote, uh, the quote K- the Kentucky Fried Chicken founder, Colonel Sanders, don't mess with the gravy. That was one of his big things. Don't ever mess with the, the, that secret gravy recipe. Don't mess with the re- recipe that's working for you. Nigel, thanks so much for being a part of this. I know we're going to have some great questions from the audience. It's Trish and and uh, Greg, come back. I also want to thank my friends right here at Venture X and Castle Hills. I'm in Castle Hills right here in Dallas today. Uh, I've been doing a program with our Success North Dallas uh, group. Uh, we had a great program today. And of course, the folks here at Venture X let me borrow and use their studio. So thank you very much for that.
0: C-Suite Radio.
1: Hey, Trish, Greg, turn it over to you and, and get questions from the audience.
3: Thank you so much, Jeffrey Nigel. That was an incredible conversation, and I know that the Q and A is going to go like crazy. Just building off of the last conversation or the last strand of the conversation, we have a conver- we have a question from uh, Steve Conlin about how you really do look at that experience and the the opinions of the customer uh, and the franchisor you know so so how do you address those issues when they're in conflict nigel and what's your what is your sort of process and approach when it comes to very conflicting approaches equally passionate to your point
2: well um i think too many people think you have to come up with a quick answer and and an example that's actually pretty well documented in my book is we knew that customers wanted the dunkin cake cups which were available in supermarkets sorry which were available in our dunkin stores but were not available online or in supermarkets we had to demonstrate to the franchisees that we could grow our brand stop competitors coming in by allowing the dunkin brand to go into supermarkets i obviously had a little bit of a conflict between a bald who thought well that's our revenue and the franchisees who didn't want to do it. I had 17 breakfasts, I actually counted it, with the franchise leader. It spent about a year getting to a conclusion. Mm-hmm. But I'm a firm believer, if you keep working at it, recognize that there's a gap, and I talk about this again in the book, if you, you know, there's a gap between the franchisees and what they believe is important, and the company, what they believe is important. There's two sets of P&Ls that may be in conflict, to your point, Trish. You have to find a way of bridging it. Sometimes it takes time. Sometimes you have to take the emotion out. And the best thing we did was say to the franchisees, here's a million dollars. Go and do your own research. And the research came back and supported the view forward. And what we did in the end was split the revenue 50 50. And that was a perfect answer. The customer got what they wanted. The company got the brand into the supermarkets and the franchisees. Had better unit economics as a result of the money. So, I have a question
4: regarding the franchisees uh, and the, the national mood when it comes to uh, immigrants. Now, uh, at least in New York, there a lot of the, and New Jersey, uh, a lot of immigrants purchase Dunkin' Donuts uh, as a way to try and get in on the American dream. And there's a big backlash against uh, immigrants and immigration uh, across the country right now. Uh, how can you just talk about the immigrant experience with regard to Dunkin' Donuts and why a lot of them see getting a a, a franchise, whether it be Dunkin' or any franchise, as a stepping stone to the American dream?
2: Well, yeah, I mean th- let's start with the American dream. And, and firstly, I'm a I'm proud to be an American citizen, even though I don't sound like one, uh, as well as a British citizen. So the American dream, I think, is is wonderful. This country supports entrepreneurialism, and and I think it's something that we should all encourage. Uh, you're right. A lot of people come into franchising because they see it as a way of employing their family, growing wealth for their family. And I saw some spectacular examples in my time at Dunkin' Papa John's, again, where people came to this country. Good examples in Duncan were uh, up in the Northeast here. I'm in Boston. We have a lot of people from Brazil and Portugal, particularly the Azores, a lot of people from the Indian subcontinent, but they saw an opportunity. They came here. So I think they've, my personal view is, they've added a lot to this country. They've created jobs. Um, they're very, as I said before, entrepreneurial. So I would encourage immigration because I, I can rest assured that later this year, When we're not talking about the results of COVID and the unemployment that still exists, we're going to be talking as we were two years ago. The biggest issue is finding people. So constructive immigration with appropriate controls is what I used to discuss with uh, the administration, be it Democrat or Republican. Uh, I think the industry that I've worked in principally, the uh, restaurant industry, is a great great, uh, Provider of jobs, we constantly need more people. So I think constructive immigration is something that America's thrived on and will thrive on in the future.
3: I love that perspective, as I shared with you, Nigel. I'm a I'm actually a recent American citizen, Canadian as well, and um, that the those issues are so unchallenged, so challenging to unpack. And I just want to come back to. A point you made earlier—you talked about your board at Duncan, and then of course the franchisors and um, the the management that you've done of massive, you know, changes in marketplace and massive organizations strategic management of your board and your shareholders. I'd love to hear what are your key insights on how to do that right. Obviously you have a very collaborative approach, but how are you able to translate and also transition because now we have this whole notion of corporate responsibility and how that plays in uh, to shareholder value and so on. So, so there's a lot of navigating from a board management perspective and I'd love to hear your kind of key takeaways on on how you how you navigated those waters?
2: Well, let's start with the board. Um, we went from being private owned by three private equity firms to going public in 2011 at a share price of 19. And the end of the story was 2020 December last year, we sold at 106.50. So we moved uh, the <laughs> over five times the shareholder value of the company. And I would give a considerable amount of the credit to that, to our board. We had a board that pushed hard on me. Uh, We had some heated debates, but it never got personal, never got, uh, let's let's say, deconstructive. Uh, It was always positive, always always done in the vein of what can we do for the customer? What can we do for the franchisees? And I think too many CEOs believe they should tell the board and not embrace the board. And I'm fortunate to sit to chair four companies and sit on six boards all together, private and public. And you have to pull the board in. And I think that's the key word, pull the board in, because they have to have the opportunity to challenge you as the CEO. Now, obviously, when I'm chairman, it's a bit easier, because I'm the one that's trying to encourage the board to talk to the CEO. So I think that's absolutely critical. But you also have to make sure the board is informed. I mean, boards should be going to stores. They should occasionally be meeting franchisees. They should be obviously seeing customer data. So I think the boards are absolutely critical. And I want to turn your question around another way. I think too many CEOs get the job, and perhaps even C suite executives, and they've never been on a board. You need to get the board's perspective of how they look at companies. And I would say the single best development I ever had. Was being on company boards, and I've been on public boards now since 1996. Um, continually been on nine different boards in three countries, and I think it is the best development that any C-suite executive could get.
4: I have a question. So, Trish is before she became an American, just like you, she was a Canadian. Now, Tim Hortons about a decade ago, made a big push. And I think you were still at Dunkin' when they were making their big push into New York, opening up shops all over New York, and they were rebuffed. So talk about, if you may, maybe what you did right in rebuffing Tim Hortons and their Canadian invasion of the Northeast of America, or what Tim Hortons did wrong.
2: Okay. Well, I'd rather talk about what we did right. Um, The the first thing we, we did was recognize that we had some competition. And, you know, we talk about the American dream and Trish and I, as we've both gone through the immigration process, one of the things that's absolutely delightful, I'm sure she would agree, is listening to the stories of other people who've become American citizens. Some of them are very heartwarming. But what we did is that we said we got competition. Franchisees, what are we going to do to compete with that competition? So we we were competitive right out the gate, Greg. Um, we made sure that our uh franchisees had the support from corporate that they needed we tracked it regularly we talked to them we talked about what tim hortons were doing what they were doing that was good here's an example they embraced the community very significantly in places like buffalo and and we had to come back and counter that very strongly but we focused the franchisees and we also celebrated successes i remember having a big party In Rhode Island, when Tim Hortons left, we did the same in Maine, because you have to give people a goal. And and it wasn't a big financial goal. We said to them, if you do well, the competition shuts down, we will celebrate with you. And they were great parties. But what it did is, in many franchise organizations, there's this gap between the franchisees and the franchisors. We were together. And 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 one thing I perhaps should have mentioned earlier with Jeff is one of the reasons why how we bridged the gap in Duncan is our franchisees and us worked together on our community foundation. We were as one. We weren't in opposing camps. We were helping other people, particularly in our case um kids and and that worked very well.
3: So, Nigel, um, I've got a couple of other questions that are just phenomenal here. Uh, You know, you mentioned about wanting to speak to successes. Celebrates in C-Suite has been the most successful event we have in our whole community. It's every Friday night, and that's what we do. Big or small, we celebrate successes. So you're speaking uh, one of our love languages here for sure. Steve Leshansky is one of our uh, faculty leaders uh, in C-Suite globally, and he asks, when you do screw up something like the Super League failure, What do you suggest in terms of recovering that kind of a scenario?
2: Well, there was a great example today. John Henry, who's here in Boston, chairman of Fenway um, and the Red Sox, my baseball team, uh, Liverpool. uh, He came out with a letter that everyone should read. He said, it was my mistake. It was me alone. He was accountable. I mean, people will forgive mistakes. We all make mistakes. I mean, one of our players in the game last night threw the ball in, didn't see one of the opponents, and it went straight to him and they scored. We make mistakes. That's what life is about. So, not only do you have to learn from your mistakes that everyone says, I think you have to take accountability. And the John Henry example, I think, is a terrific one. I love
3: that. You know, uh, failure is really just sitting in the mistake, right? Mistakes that we all make. I, I love the sports analogy for that.
0: C suite radio.
3: Greg, I know you have another question
4: to share. Oh, no. So as a person who's on the board, as you mentioned, Advanced Auto, Abercrombie & Fitch, you're with Duncan Brands. These are very different industries. So I'm going to paraphrase Gertrude Stein, as I tend to do. You know, is a brand, is a brand, is a brand? Is it all the same?
2: No, uh, no, it isn't. I mean, Advanced Auto um, is obviously very different products. Um, it it. it If you take food, you're actually manufacturing the product effectively in front of the customer. I mean, you go into Dunkin', it's a bit like going into any other restaurant. The food is basically manufactured in front of you. Now, some people will will say our manufacturing process is different from a high-end restaurant, but you're still doing it there. So you have to tailor it a little bit to the customer. And I think one of the great successes for Dunkin' that we often forget is right from the start, you could have your coffee anyway. I think there was 2,000 ways of having your coffee at Dunkin'. So it's tailored to the customer. Um, it's a little bit different at Abercrombie and um, Advanced Auto. But I think what they both did, they recognized who their consumer is. They identified with those consumers. They tailored their marketing for the consumer. And a good example of that is, is the Die Hard campaign, that, which are the batteries that we own. Uh, and we bought back Bruce Willis for uh, uh, a retread, let's say, of, um, of Die Hard. And that's been a big success. And at Abercrombie, they used influencers, and that's worked really well. But I think the lesson I've learned from Abercrombie is you can never get consumer feedback enough. I mean, I was in some stores on Sunday in England, and... We were debating whether fashion starts in America or it starts in Europe. They claimed it was in Europe, and they have this process whereby around the world they follow trends, and they're on top of it all the time. So you need to be up to date, be it a food trend or a fashion trend.
3: Absolutely. So Kathleen Caldwell is the leader of our Women's Leadership Council in C-Suite. And she's asking, you know, you you mentioned about we we all make mistakes. We're not all performing at 100 percent, 100 percent of the time. But how do you make that performance more consistent uh, at that excellence
2: level? Okay, so a lot of people use questions like that to talk about consistency between stores. And I think you need, again, Constant customer feedback, you need to do regular visits to to, to coach. And I think this is a key key word, coach the franchisees to do better. Many systems employ people who are checkers or cops. I think the transition that you need to embrace is a coach. And and it's interesting, I'm now chairman of a company called Surfpro, which is a very big uh, company, franchise again and and we're making this migration to coaching our franchisees to develop their business uh on on the back of uh residential and commercial mitigation because we go in when someone has a flood or a fire or something like that big storm and and, and i think it's the coaching that is so important and and i think too many companies use uh, um the the stick rather than the supportive approach as you said I'm a very collaborative person. I like, well, I like to believe I am, and I think if you use that collaborative approach, you'll get a much better result than just mm-hmm. saying to a franchiser, "You got it wrong." Here's the result.
3: Love that approach, Jeffrey. Frequently says, nobody wakes up in the morning saying, "Let me see what a terrible job I can do today and how little I can contribute to everyone I serve." You know, so uh, that's that's fantastic, Greg. I know you have another question.
4: But when people wake up in the morning, they need a coffee and a donut. But Jay Rovert wants to know whether or not um, the fast food industry uh, should be worried about uh, an anti-carb movement or how they deal with uh, people wanting fresher foods and more nutritious foods or whether or not you see that that sea change already taking place.
2: Well, it's it's interesting. Right from the time I went into the industry, uh, everyone would ask me that question. And as I went around the world, every country I went to thought they were the obesity capital of the world. I mean, I've heard that in Russia. I've heard that in India. I've heard that in England. I've heard it in uh, America. So clearly, people should be concerned about their health. And as someone who's 71, I work out all the time. I try and watch what I eat. I think there is a personal responsibility. But what is really interesting is when you give people their options, they don't always take it. I mean, when I got to Dunkin', we had effectively a light menu uh, and it was about half percent of our revenues. So I think you have to give people the choice, let the individuals make their own choice. I mean, one of the things we did do that was very successful was uh, we went to plant-based foods in the last couple of years I was at Dunkin'. Uh, and and that, that was very successful. But the key thing is to give people the option. Uh, so if they want to... Have a light week. They have that potential. So,
3: Nigel, we have a couple more questions about the board and the management of the board, and this is it. Really, truly, is the holy grail of what we do in building and scaling businesses, yeah. and and um, and and there's so uh, so much misunderstanding. Uh, your words are certainly ringing true with everyone. Nancy May asked. You know, regarding the board, how difficult has it been to remove a director who is not pulling their weight or creating obstacles? Um, you know, not really creating that value for the CEO, uh, management, and other stakeholders. When that happens, how have you dealt with it? And then, and then Angel speaks to: Do executives really understand how they can be creating shareholder value, and is that something that boards are addressing appropriately?
2: Okay, so there's a lot there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, firstly. Removing a director who's, let's say, less effective, I personally had to do that as a lead director once. It wasn't easy, um, but it's probably no different from removing an executive. You give them feedback, you ask them to improve, and eventually you get a consensus amongst the board. And I think that's one thing that may be different. If you're in an executive position, you've obviously got a number of people to consult upwards and downwards, but you make a decision. A board is a bigger organization. It's a wider organization, and most boards have typically nine to eleven people. So you have to get if if you if you're highlighting the poor performance of one, you have to get ten other people on the side. That's not always easy, but in many ways consistent with the challenge culture. It makes you think: Are you doing the right thing, or could we give this individual one more chance? So I I, I think you have to go through a process. Uh, In terms of executives and and the board, I think one of the things that really does worry me is that executives don't understand how boards work. And that's why I'm a big advocate for getting on boards. And many people say, uh, well, no one's going to take me on a public board. Well, go and join the local school board or the local community organization or whatever. Because even though it is somewhat different, you will see the dynamics that go on in boards. And, and I think one thing that most executives should do is think about what goes on in the executive session of a board. For those who don't know what I'm talking about, you go through a board meeting, and then the chairman will say, right, we're going into executive session of the board. The first part, the CEO will be in there if he's on the board, he or she is on the board. They then leave, and then the board talks about what's going on. I can tell you as a CEO... That's the most frightening time. You sit in your office thinking, well, they've been now talking for 45 minutes. What are they talking about? What have I done wrong? It may not be that at all. They may be having a general chat about something, but you should think about how they will see it. The other thing I would say that I think helps alignment is too many people see board meetings as a set play. That's the sporting analogy again. In other words, you have a board meeting, they say, oh, my God, we've done with the board meeting. We don't have to think about the board for another three months. I think that's wrong. You should see it as a constant dialogue. And one thing I learned last year is one of my boards had far more meetings than another board. Instead of having to think, what did we talk about last time? It was like a constant dialogue. And I think there is a belief by executives that you shouldn't have a constant dialogue with a board. The board is there. There to help you, and I think if you embrace that thinking, you'll get a much better result, and the board will feel better about it. And guess what? You'll also have a better educated board,
3: and a board that's more empowered is a board that's going to be doing so much more work for you. That's I've I've absolutely noticed the exact same uh, dynamic, Nigel. That's that's board, fantastic, Greg.
2: All members want to be used as well. Mm-hmm. I mean. Um, I mean, a a good example at my football club right now, one of our board members, he's had some business issues recently. So we have recently asked him to look at a project for a new training ground. Wow, he's doing some fantastic work because, to your point, we empowered him. So use the board as a resource. So uh, I'm going to wrap it up, but I have one more
4: question for you. So when you came to Dunkin' Donuts, you were probably entering a brand new industry. What is it that amazed you the most when you got into the coffee industry, whether it be uh, Americans eating habits or the amount of coffee we drink or how they buy the beans? So is there any under the hood information that you can provide uh, our many, many attendees on this panel? Once again, we thank you for coming, you know, because we all drink coffee. We all go to Dunkin Donuts. We buy coffee. But is there one thing that really
2: thing that we don't even think about when we go when we grab our coffee to go? I'll tell you what really shocked me was just how powerful this brand is in New England. I mean, over time we've tried to take Duncan away from being a regional chain, and my predecessor did a very good job on that across the country and across the world. But this is a powerhouse. I've never seen fanaticism like it. I mean, I had someone once who wrote to me and said, Nigel, can I send you some videos? So I said, sure. He said, I spent two weeks on vacation. I'm from Maine, and I went to New York, and I went into 200 Dunkin' Donuts. Can I send you the videos of that? I mean, there are very few brands out there. And and I think the, the, the challenge we had was to capture that kind of enthusiasm as we moved across the country. But there's another thing that I think is important for the people – Listening to this today, I had an advantage. I was not a New Englander. I didn't know all that. I wasn't loyal to the brand, and that gave me a fresh set of eyes. And I think, as a new CEO, a fresh set of eyes is a good thing. Now, all the research says that if you recruit a CEO, the best way of doing it, and we did this at Dunkin' when my successor came in, is to bring someone in, give them a senior job, give them the chance to. Work out or fail, and then promote them. That's what all the research says. So I think this outsider view is very, very helpful for any company in any industry.
3: Nigel, I I have to ask you uh, the the we could we could speak forever with you because the experience that you bring to the table in terms of the the concept, but then also how it applies to creating incredible success is extraordinary. So do you have just a few more minutes for us for one more question and then, okay. So, so Dan Silverberg, again, is one of our faculty leaders in C-suite and he asks a question that's completely on a different tangent. We know you love technology. We know you love seeing, you know, different things happening in the marketplace. And so he's asking what you think the future of clubhouse is versus podcasting and um, you know, what that Participation is going to look like uh, what you're expecting to see in that in that experience, and um, certainly where customers are traveling.
2: Well, this is where I have to be honest. I don't know much about Clubhouse, so I'm not going to comment about it. Uh, but I am a fanatical podcast uh, person, and one of the things I often say in speeches is life is about non-stop learning. And when I go for a run, I always listen to podcasts. Um, I sometimes listen to news, I sometimes listen to in-depth analysis of companies. Uh, it was really weird, by the way, there's a bunch of podcasts out there called uh, "Business Wars," and I listened to the Starbucks v Dunkin one, and it's really weird hearing about yourself said through other people in imitating your accent. Um, <laughs> but, but I, th- I think podcasts are, are, are really the future. And Clubhouse, I'm not qualified to comment on. Thank you.
3: Okay, so my next question, which is my last question, um, our our principles in C-suite are relevancy, reach, and reciprocity. And as the community officer of our organization, I get to share that means we always wanna create relevancy for each other. And you'll notice the chat, is has been very much following this conversation. Yep. And that's something we really take great pride in. Our reach, we extend our communities to each other and great people come from great people. Um, and then reciprocity. If ever there's an ask, there's always a give. And so my last question for you is you've given us this time, this insight, this wealth of, uh, of, of approaches that we can be thinking to in terms of how we're driving success for our own organizations and for those we serve. What can we give you?
2: That's a great one. By the way, one of my favorite books is called Give and Take, so I agree with the uh, concept. Um, I I think what you can give me is a belief that the challenge culture is something that can operate in most businesses. I was fortunate I helped a company in uh, applied materials. I helped them change their culture. I think it works. I think there's too much ego In the world, and you could say the Super League discussion we had is another example of that in the last couple of days. But what I would say is take the ego out, embrace the team. It will make you a better CMO, CFO, CHRO, CIO, whatever O you are. I think it will make you better. So that's what I'd like to see because I truly believe it.